Until two years ago, I have followed the typical Mormon girl track. I grew up in a highly populated Mormon city, the fifth of seven children. Conservative family, my dad was always a ward or stake clerk of some kind and is a high councilman now, I think. And I loved the gospel completely. I'm currently at BYU and I was married at 19 and I have a two-year-old at age 23. And I've been feeling off since I started taking religion classes at BYU, but I couldn't figure out why. Something about studying scriptures academically was making my connection to God worse? That didn't make sense, though. I had a distaste for come-follow-me lesson manuals that I chalk up to mostly my disdain for studying. But I felt that way especially when I was doing some website work for BYU Studies in 2018, uploading their weekly study guides to go with the manual. I even met Stephen Harper, who edited Saints. He seems like a nice guy, but I don't know much about him. In 2018, I married my husband, who I've been best friends with since we were teenagers, and I got pregnant a year and a half later, unexpectedly. And it was stupid hard. I had to go to class vomiting for the full nine months. My son was born right as the pandemic started, and BYU changed its remote learning flexibility to allow for Zoom. I think that's the only way that I'm graduating now, because I had no other support system other than my ward of also busy students. And that's kind of what really started me doubting. This is Infants on Thrones. Baby steps. Who wants someone to preach to? The philosophies of men. I like magical toys. Who wants religion to? Mingled with humor. I don't believe in them. There will be many willing to preach to you the philosophies of men mingled with humor. We are evolving. Baby steps. You can buy in this world of money. the good in everything look for the people who will set your soul free it always seems impossible until it's done look for the good in everyone all right welcome back to infants on thrones I'm Glenn Ostland, and this is episode 786, Transgender Testimony Time. And what you just heard in that introduction was the first part of a message that a 23-year-old female listener, let's say, let's say that her name's Annie. It's not actually Annie, but let's say that it is. So what you just heard was the first part of an introduction that was sent to me by Annie, who wrote this to me when she filled out the Infants on Mindfulness survey which you can find on the website, infantsonthrones.com, in case any of you want to fill that out and share some of your story with me as well. But I'm going to share the rest of what Annie wrote to me right now. So Annie continued on by saying, In my fifth year, about to graduate, freshly diagnosed with depression, anxiety, and ADHD, one of my eyes went temporarily partially blind two months after childbirth. I think from stress, but I never really found out. And now my son is turning two. I have just felt invisible as a mom student here. I thought that families were important. I was under the impression that I could do both, work and be a mother. That's what my mom did, although she did drop out of BYU when she got pregnant. 
But I found that BYU has no support system for mothers, the only university in Utah without a daycare for students. And we all know they could afford it. I wouldn't have minded increased tuition even. Not to mention that they don't cover birth control for married women under their insurance. So if any of their female students happen to get pregnant due to their lack of coverage, they also don't help them with childcare to complete their degrees. I've also learned that the church has virtually no support system for mothers in general. Most other churches have daycares with background checks for their employees. We get nursery with people with no background checks so that we can spend an hour talking about scriptures. No help for the actual work that I need to do to support my family, as my husband and I have decided that I'm probably going to be the main breadwinner anyway. Also, one of my dear friends married her wife, who is a trans woman, and it hurts so much to see her unable to share even the gender of her spouse in conversations with professors during classes at the extreme risk of getting kicked out of school. And it hurts so much to see her unable to share even the gender of her spouse in conversations with professors during classes at the extreme risk of getting kicked out of school. I can't sit with that at all. They love the gospel still, but they have to constantly hide in order to survive. I finally let myself start listening to a feminist podcast, Breaking Down Patriarchy, which clarified so many of my feelings I couldn't define, or wouldn't define, about being a woman in the church. I followed several post-Mormon or transition period Instagram pages and came across infants as a recommendation. Listening to Breaking Down Patriarchy got me to a point where I felt I could give myself permission to ask questions for the first time. Within a week of that shift, I read about the temple changes over church history, Brigham Young and blood atonement, oath of vengeance, penalties, etc. All that violence caked into what I had believed was most beautiful, pure, holy, and sacred shook me so hard that I stayed up till 8 a.m. sobbing. That's probably my shelf breaking. But I'm still too close to that moment to fully know. I'm still wearing garments, but I don't know why anymore. I do think there's a God due to my personal experience with prayer and what you might call an inner voice, etc. But I am open to other definitions of God lately. I do believe in a God, or a goddess, or even a non-binary spirit being that resides in the root systems of trees and fungi that calls me daughter, even if maybe I'm not literally that. I'll still be attending church because we're moving back in with my parents temporarily after graduating to figure out where my husband will go to school. And I don't think I'm ready to show my parents how hugely I've changed since leaving Mesa five years ago. And I don't think I'm quite ready to show my parents just how much I've changed in the five years since I left home to go to BYU. I just recently discovered your podcast, Infants on Thrones. It's been jarring at first. I don't know what current episodes are like, but I enjoy the mixture of Smackdown and philosophy. It's certainly much more varied education than I got in my minor equivalent of LDS religion courses. I always enjoy discussions with multiple perspectives. And thank you very much, Annie, for sharing that with me. Now, in response, there are two things that I want to share with you. The first is a mini-sode that I created back in February 2014. Listening to you talk about your friend who married a transgendered woman reminded me of the role that my own inner voice of compassion for transgendered people played for me in my exit from the church. 
It was also the inspiration between my last fast and testimony testimony that I gave over the pulpit, which happened in November 2010. So I'm going to be sharing this mini-sode with you that I originally called The Untestimony, and it was first published back in February 2014. And then after that, the second thing is a brand new, never before released on publicly, at least on Infants on Thrones. It's an interview that I did this past autumn with a transgendered former member of the church named Ren Christensen. Now, I released this interview on Patreon a few months ago for subscribers who commit to at least $1 a month to support the podcast, but I haven't released it yet to the public, and there's really no good reason why I haven't done it. I kind of just forgot that I had it, and maybe I was just waiting to get this message from you, Annie. So this really is one of my favorite conversations that I've had with anyone, this conversation that I had with Ren, so I'm really happy to be reminded of it and to be able to release it and share it with you here today. So that's what you're in for with today's episode of Infants on Thrones, which I call Testimony Time, and now... This is Infants on Thrones. Mini sound. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Osland, and I want to start today by thanking those of you who gave such nice comments, both publicly and privately, on the Regret Minisode. I'm glad that I was able to touch something in so many of you, and hopefully this one will go down a similar path. So, at the end of that Regret episode, I wondered out loud why we don't just stand up and make our dissent heard when we hear things that we disagree with or that are just plain wrong. Well, I mean, obviously the answer is social convention. You know, there are consequences to such behavior. Uh, A Japanese proverb says that the nail that stands out gets hammered. So yeah, you act out like that, you're going to get hammered. I get that. But there was one time when I actually did take a stand and risk that public hammer. It was in a testimony meeting, so yeah, there was already a social space already carved out that would allow me to have some kind of a voice. So it's not like I just stood up in the middle of a congregation and began spouting out from there. I played by the rules. I just didn't exactly say what's normally said in those situations. So I'll tell you more about that in a little bit. But first, let me give you a little bit of background. Now, I want to tell you about Chris, and I'll be very upfront with you that Chris is not this guy's real name. I'm going to share with you some parts of Chris's life that he hasn't shared with very many people and that he's very sensitive about for reasons that you'll eventually see. And yes, I did ask him to come on the podcast at one point and tell this story in his own words, but he's actually quite terrified of being identified. So I'm calling him Chris, and I'm going to say that he was born in the imaginary land of Kazoo. So just go with it. Now, Chris is an active, believing member of the church in full fellowship. Well, at least in as much full fellowship as he's allowed. And he started his story with me by taking me way back, way, way back. I mean, he started with day 63 of his fetal development in his mother's womb. He, he went back even before that, actually, because he's convinced that, like it says in the proclamation on the family, that gender is eternal and that his eternal gender, that his spirit essence, 
he's a man and that he always was a man and that he always will be a man. But somehow around day 63 in development, some chromosomal shift normally happens where the sex organs begin to form. And in his case, a little mistake was made and a female body began forming to house his eternal male spirit. Now, he doesn't know exactly why this happened. He doesn't see it as some kind of a trial that God intentionally gave to him. It was just one of those mistakes of nature that, you know, things like this happen. And he explained it to me this way. He said, Glenn, have you ever put on a Halloween costume with a plastic mask and you look out and you can see the world through these eye holes? You know, you know who you really are on the inside, but no one on the outside can ever really see who you are. They think that you're someone else. Well, that's how it's been for me my entire life. So Chris grew up in the church, and he struggled a lot with his identity, and he struggled with finding a place to fit in. And then when he was around 20 years old, he'd finally had enough. He was either going to end his life or drastically reshape it. Now, thankfully, he chose to reshape it. He went through two years of intense psychiatric evaluation. Before any sex change procedures would be approved, he was given test after test to determine just how male he really was. And he was told by a committee of, I think it was six psychiatrists, that he had the highest male scores of any candidate they had ever previously seen. So he was able to get a surgery, and he began creating a new life for himself, where the costume outside matched more closely to who he was inside. But in the church, you can't just really switch teams like that. It wasn't like he could just walk down the hall from the Relief Society room and sit down in elders' quorum, and now he can start passing and blessing the sacrament and stand in the blessing circles and carry around one of those little keychain thingies with the pure olive oil in that he had magically transformed from the normal olive oil into the divinity-infused healing ointment. You know, he believed in all that stuff. He wanted all that stuff, but it wasn't available to him. And that was incredibly painful. So he reluctantly fell away from the church. But here's the thing. He got a girlfriend and they started living together. And he kept telling her about how awesome this Mormon church was that he grew up in. And they prayed together and they sometimes read the Book of Mormon together. And she started thinking, hey, this is a pretty awesome religion too. So she took the initiatives and she called the missionaries. And they came to the door and they thought, cool, a new conversion and a reactivation all in one stroke. My stats are going to look awesome. But they ran into a little problem because you have to be interviewed before you're baptized into the church. And if you're living together out of wedlock and you're having sex, well... That's a problem. And if it turns out that the person playing the man part in that whole sex thing isn't really technically a man, but more like some penis envy chick who thinks she's a guy wearing a surgically enhanced dude costume, well, that's an even bigger problem. A problem that took a year to resolve and went all the way up to Salt Lake. So Chris thought for sure that they would be denied. But his local stake president got involved, and he was a really good guy, and he went to bat for Chris and his girlfriend, Chris, with a K. Not her real name either. And a letter finally came back from Salt Lake that she could be baptized. And, and this is the really important part, that Chris's gender on his official church records had been amended. 
he was now listed as a male with an asterisk, which he was told meant that at this time he would not be allowed to participate in the priesthood. Now to Chris, this was an answer to prayer, and he never forgot that little piece that he was told at this time, that part, because to him, that gave him hope that maybe at a future time, he would have the priesthood and he would be able to participate in full fellowship in the church. So for years and years, Chris lived a very full life in the church as a man, usually with only the bishop aware of his unique past. And he was able to attend all three hours of church and participate in priesthood lessons and hold callings and all that good stuff. Now, he didn't have the priesthood, of course, and he didn't have a temple endowment. He wasn't able to wear garments, which was rough for him. But again, it was probably only temporary. But unfortunately, so was this status in the priesthood, because after the whole Prop 8 kerfuffle went down, Chris's bishop decided that it would probably be best if Chris no longer attended priesthood or go home teaching or do any of that man stuff. But Chris maintained his faith and activity despite this, and he remains a faithful, active member to this day. Now, there have been times where he's been asked by doctors and by others to speak out about his experience, his successful transition after the surgery, and the way that he's lived such a rich and fulfilling life. But he keeps quiet, because one condition of this whole asterisk thing was that he keep quiet. And he's afraid that if he speaks up even a little, that his records will be reversed. But even worse than that, he's terrified that one day when he dies and is resurrected, that he'll be resurrected in the body he was born with and be stuck as a female for all of eternity. That, he explained, would be his worst hell. And he doesn't want to do anything to risk that happening. So I really appreciated that Chris would open up and share his story with me. And I admired the way that he maintained his faith in the church because I wouldn't if I were in that situation. But here's a guy who believes and loves the church despite overwhelming obstacles. I found this inspiring. So imagine my response a few weeks after hearing this story when, in October 2010, Boyd K. Packer stands up in general conference and makes the following remarks. We raise an alarm and warn members of the church to wake up and understand what's going on. Parents be alert, ever watchful, that this wickedness I threaten your family circle. We teach a standard of moral conduct that will protect us from Satan's many substitute counters and counterfeits for marriage. We must understand that any persuasion to enter into any relationship that is not in harmony with the principles of the gospel must be wrong. From the Book of Mormon, we learn that Wickedness never was happiness. Some suppose that they were preset and cannot overcome what they feel are inborn tendencies toward the impure and the unnatural. Not so. Why would our Heavenly Father do that to anyone? Inborn tendencies towards the impure and unnatural, inborn tendencies towards wickedness. Why would our Heavenly Father do that to anyone? Yeah, why would He? And more specifically for me, why would He do that to Chris? Well, the short answer from my conversation with Chris just a few weeks earlier was that He didn't, 
and he doesn't. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen, like, as Chris described it, just a part of nature. So what do you do when you encounter things like this that actually have happened? Isaiah warned, warned to them that call evil good and good evil. So this is curious. Does this Isaiah warning go both ways, President Packer? Because you're very quick to imply that people erroneously call the evil of immorality a good thing. But here's what I see in your talk, if I may be so bold. You are erroneously calling the evil of discrimination and exclusion and unkindness. You're calling those things good. So I think I'm going to follow that scripture. I think I'm going to do what Isaiah said. But now I'm a little conflicted. They put darkness for light and light for darkness and put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Yeah, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And as soon as you get your big amen at the end of this talk, we will have evidence of an entire congregation confusing the bitter for the sweet. Because you, President Packer, well, sounds like someone's a little bitter. Years ago, I visited a school in Albuquerque. The teacher told me about a youngster who brought a kitten to class. And you can imagine that disrupted everything. She had him hold up the kitten in front of the children. It went well until one of the children asked, is it a boy kitty or a girl kitty? Not wanting to get into that lesson, the teacher said, it doesn't matter. It's just a kitty. But they persisted. Finally, one boy raised his hand and said, I know how you can tell. Resigned to face it, the teacher said, how can you tell? And the students answered, you can vote on it. You may laugh at the story, but if we're not alert, there are those today who not only tolerate but advocate voting to change laws that would legalize immorality. Oh my gosh, this, this story is just ridiculous. Regardless of the opposition, we're determined to stay on course. We will hold to the principles and laws and ordinance of the gospel. Okay, well, here are some gospel principles for you. Um, they're called the Beatitudes, and they're credited to this guy named Jesus. And, um, okay, you want to hear what they say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the poor in spirit, I guess that probably means people that are feeling a little sad or discouraged or depressed. Okay, that's pretty cool. Blessed are those who mourn. Well, they shall be comforted. You mean they won't just be told to buck up and, you know, get with the program? <laughs> okay, all right, cool. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Hear that? Blessed are the Greek. The Greek? Mm. Well, apparently he's going to inherit the earth. Oh, it's the meek! Blessed are the meek! Oh, that's nice, in it? I'm glad they're getting something because they have a hell of a time. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what is right, for they shall be filled. Hey, that sort of sounds like me. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Well, I gotta say, there's probably a few reasons why merciful people are blessed. I mean, probably holding on to less stress and less angst, but that you'll receive mercy too. 
All right, sign me up. That sounds cool. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Yeah, I'm probably a little too jaded and cynical to really qualify here, but um, I can work on that. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Yeah, this is one of the coolest Beatitudes to me, uh, being a peacemaker, you know, someone who builds bridges instead of burns bridges and tries to give people the benefit of the doubt and, uh, you know, someone who's diplomatic. I like this teaching. Be a peacemaker. Big thumbs up. Like it. Like it. Like it. Like it. Blessed are those who are persecuted in the cause of right. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You mean like people who just want to have equal rights as everybody else? Those people that are persecuted? Blessed are you when people abuse you and persecute you and speak all kinds of calumny against you for my sake. No, stuff like that doesn't happen. Not in the church. To legalize that which is basically wrong or evil will prevent, not repent, the pain and penalties that will follow as surely as night follows day. If they are misunderstood, either innocently or willfully, so be it. We cannot change. We will not change the moral standard. We quickly lose our way when we disobey the laws of God. I'm going to say amen there, but probably not for the reason he would hope. So this is the kind of stuff that was all going through my mind on Sunday, November 7th, 2010 the first fast Sunday after General Conference, and this was when the first counselor in the bishopric kicked off testimony meeting by explaining how amazing conference had been and how inspired the messages had been because, you know, these guys are special witnesses of that Beatitudes guy, Jesus Christ. And how horrible is it that some people in the church dismiss the words of the brethren thinking that they can determine with their own reasons of man what will be accepted and what they'll reject? You can't be a smorgasbord Mormon, he said, relying on the arm of your own understanding. And as I sat there listening to this crap, something inside of me just snapped. So when he invited people to come up to bear their testimony, I was the first one at the podium. Now, I started off by saying that I wanted to bear my testimony and that I do not know that the church is true. And I turned over and I looked at our first counselor and I told him that I was one of these very smorgasbord Mormons who he was talking about, that I believe that there is tremendous value in using the reasoning of man and that some of the messages in general conference I agree with and others I just don't. And then I told the congregation pretty much the same story I just told you about Chris. And I told them about his deep faith and his desire to be a member in full standing So what am I supposed to do when I'm told to lead a Christ-like life all my life, which includes humility and meekness and forgiveness and all those cool beatitude things? And then I come face to face with a kind of arrogant disdain and dismissiveness from one of the top leaders in our church. Now, to me, there's just so much in this world that we just really don't understand. And as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints— We proclaim that we have this belief in Jesus and the atonement, you know, this example of a God who so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to live an exemplary life of kindness and charity and ultimately lay down his life to die for our sins. 
So shouldn't that really be the foundation for everything that we do? That should be the default position for everything. Shouldn't that be a message of hope that frees us from our own parasitical nitpicking and worrying about perfection and propriety and exactitude? Shouldn't that allow us to be more kind and charitable towards each other? So that's where my testimony is, and that's what I told my congregation. This is where my hope and faith is, and that's where I want my church experience to be. But it's definitely a smorgasbord approach, and I'm not going to stop using the reasoning of man. So is there a place for me here or not? And those were the things that I said in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, that testimony meeting went on pretty much without a hitch. A few people got up and referenced or acknowledged things that I had said, but it was a pretty typical meeting after that. Now, at the end, the bishop did get up, and he directly addressed what I had said, and he said, Yes, Brother Ostland, there absolutely is a place for you here, and that goes for anyone else in this congregation who's having questions, because the church was founded by a guy who asked questions. So, We just need to be sure and to be careful that we're always questioning in faith, which, I don't know, it sounds good, but I'm not really sure that it's entirely possible. You know, not if asking in faith means that you're asking questions that you already know pretty much for sure the answers to, answers that you'll never dismiss under any circumstance, you know, like the Book of Mormon possibly not being a literal history, or Joseph Smith possibly not being commanded by God to institute polygamy, you know, that kind of faithfulness. Later in the foyer, I talked to the bishop and I asked him, you know, what did it mean to him to sustain the brethren? You know, because that's one of those important Temple recommend question things. Could I still sustain the brethren if I questioned them the way that I did in my testimony and still live my smorgasbord Mormon life? And he smiled and he said that he thought that to sustain meant that you hope that they'll eventually get it right and that you'll do everything in your power to ensure that they do. Interesting response. I kind of like it. Not sure that President Packer would buy it or Elder Oaks or anyone else in that position, but I appreciated that my bishop felt that way. Now, I also had several members in the ward approach me afterwards and thank me for what I had said. They appreciated it. Some talked about wanting a bigger tent for Mormonism. Some specifically mentioned how much they disliked that first counselor's rigid point of view, but overall it was a really good experience. Now, obviously, it wasn't enough to keep me in the church, though. Now, there was nothing about the church or the ward that really changed for me after that, but things in my life changed a lot that following January. Again, that's another story for another time, and it's really not anything that I'll be getting to any detail about in a podcast. Now, we talked about this before. I got a divorce. It changed things a lot, especially right here in this ward and in this area. But basically, I got to a place where I just couldn't sit there anymore for a number of reasons. Now, it wasn't because the ward wouldn't have me. It's actually a really great ward, and I could pretty easily create a space for myself there right now if I really wanted to. I, I just don't know why I would want to. I've been back a few times here and there over the past three years, and there's just far too much emphasis week to week on the truthfulness and literalness of it all. I've gotten all that I can out of that, and sure, I think I have stories and experiences and perspectives that could probably help other people who wanted to listen and were prepared to accept the direction that I'm coming from on this stuff. We could talk about it. We could help each other that way. But... Does that really happen at church? Is there really a space to do that? I I think that would just ruffle feathers. 
especially it would ruffle mine, and I just really don't want to go through that anymore. You know what I'm saying? So, let me end this mini-sode with my current testimony of the church, because despite all of this faith crisis and going inactive, whatever thing you want to call it, mumbo-jumbo, I really, truly am grateful that I was raised as a Mormon. I learned some very valuable life lessons from the church. I learned from the scriptures. I learned from the stories about Joseph Smith. And I don't think that the church is an evil organization. I don't think that Mormons are bad people. But I do think the environment and the worldview that is fostered in the church is ultimately unhealthy. I think that it's ultimately elitist and ethnocentric and egocentric. And it has so many parallels with the Zoramites and that whole Ramiamptum style of worship described in the Book of Mormon. It really isn't even funny. Okay, I was about to wrap this thing up, but I think this minisode just got extended maybe another 10 minutes or so, because guess what just happened? Hello, my name is Elder Price. As I was writing this last paragraph, the missionaries came to my door. Now, this is the third day that they've come in about a week, but it's the first time that I've actually been home when they came. So I told them I'd meet them at the church, and since today is Super Bowl Sunday and all, I got dressed into some church-appropriate clothes, and I headed over to meet them. Now, I really wish I would have recorded what happened because it was so much fun. Now, they started by asking how they could help me implement gospel principles more fully into my daily life, which... I thought was a pretty presumptuous question, so I smirked a little, and I really couldn't help it. I probably shouldn't have, but I asked, gospel principles like what? And they said, you know, like what about reading the scriptures every day? I said, well, I used to do that every day. And then we talked a little bit about the scriptures, like how they came about, where they came from, and I eventually said that I just got to the point where they didn't really seem real anymore. It just didn't seem like the way the world actually works. And they asked for an example. So I said, all right, well, let's start with the Tower of Babel. So here's this group of people who are building a tower super high into the sky to get way up to God. And God sees what they're doing. They're getting too close. And oh no, what can he do? So he scrambles their languages so that they can't coordinate with each other and they can't finish the tower because that'll show them. But that's not the way the real world works. I mean, that's not how languages change and how God interacts with people. This is an ideological myth that ancient people used to tell each other to explain why there are different cultures and different languages in the world. And there, sure, are lessons in that story that you can extract and use in your real life, like the dangers of pride and hubris, and there could actually be some value in exploring that metaphorically. But it didn't really happen that way. But here's the thing, you can't dismiss the Tower of Babel as a metaphor if you want to accept the Book of Mormon as a literal historical record, because remember that brother of Jared guy? Yeah, he was actually there, and he pleaded with the Lord, don't change our language, and God said, okay, and he reached out his hand and his finger, and he touched the glowing rocks, and they built submarines, and they came across under the ocean to build a huge civilization on the American continent that after about a thousand years dwindled down to just two solitary men who engaged in mortal combat, and one of them got their head cut off, and he came up gasping for air. I mean... It's a great story. It's a really cool story. Somebody ought to make a graphic novel of that thing. But it's just not the way that the real world works. So 
one of the missionaries, Elder Smith, he tried to build on common beliefs with me here by saying, yeah, he could see that with the Old Testament, that there were a lot of stories in there that he thought were ancient myths as well. But when it comes to the Book of Mormon, that's definitely true because of chiasmus and all the things that Joseph Smith got right that no one with a third grade education could possibly known. Like the measuring system with the coins that are described in the Book of Alma or the sunken cities that the Book of Mormon describes that they actually discovered down in South America. They actually fit the description of the city of Bountiful. Well, you know, we went back and forth like this for about 45 minutes and I talked to them about a lot of these things that I found out over the past several years. You know, the made-up word telestial, the obvious folk tale of Job, the Egyptian papyri in the Book of Abraham, the messages of fear that you get in the church, like Elder Bednar's object lesson to that poor little kid who just wanted to know how to start reading his scriptures again. And we covered a lot of things that I've covered on podcasts before, and we could go into more detail about it now, but really, here's the gist of it. I walked away from the missionaries realizing more clearly than I ever have that I have no guilt, I have no shame, and I have complete confidence in the decisions that I've made and in the reasons that I have for no longer being an active, believing member of the Mormon church. It's not a decision that I came to lightly. I didn't just wake up one day and go, "Eh, this is kind of stupid, I'm done. I've invested a lot of time and energy into reading and searching and pondering the teachings of the church. And it started with the teachings of the church. I didn't even start with anti-Mormon stuff. Now, of course, I don't know everything that there is to know out there. There's still a ton of stuff, but I do know a lot. And so when they ask me, what do I think happens when I die? I very frankly and honestly said, I don't know. But if I die tomorrow and it turns out that I'm standing face to face with Jesus, I expect that he would put his arms around me and say, Glenn, I understand. I get it. I know who you are and I know what you've done. And I've watched you make the decisions that you've made your entire life. It's all good. But I don't know what happens when we die. All I know is that I'm right here, right now, and I need to make the best of it with the people who I love who are around me. And like I said before, I really am grateful to the church for all of the lessons that I learned about how to do that because I learned a lot of cool stuff that I use in my everyday life. I use it at work, I use it at home, and it's really good stuff. Now, it's not exclusive to Mormonism. It's not even exclusive to the Judeo-Christian tradition, but it's good stuff like this. And charity suffereth long, and is kind, and envieth not, and is not puffed up, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, and rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, if ye have not charity, ye are nothing, for charity never faileth. Wherefore, cleave unto charity, which is the greatest of all, for all things must fail. And those things and those lessons I share with you in the name of President Boyd K. Packer. Because, dude, seriously, come on. Amen. Anyone for the closing prayer? Okay. Yeah, okay. So you're going to have to recreate everything that you just said Brian, because it was just perfect oh yeah so you know i've been listening to your show for such a long time and uh, so cool and 
I was just thinking to myself, like, oh, wow, I'm going to be on If It's Not Thrones. That's so cool. All right. See, but, but you, you've been part of this, like, experimental study group thing and done such a great job. Like, the, the things that you record and what you edit and put together, you've got a talent for it. Is that is that something that you do in other places or have you just done it for that? Uh, I, I, I mean, I've dabbled with, like, uh, doing stuff like that for, um, you know, off and on on different things. I. I once tried to start a podcast uh, called like the internet's number one MacGyver review show where I was going <laughs> to review MacGyver episodes. <laughs> like when MacGyver, when, that was in the eighties, right? Yeah. Yeah. My, uh, all my older siblings, uh, well, my, my oldest brother loved MacGyver and I looked yeah. up to him a lot. And so I was like, I watched it a lot also. And I just thought it was cool. Richard Dean Anderson. Yeah. Heartthrob, what a guy. <laughs> <laughs> so so you were going to do just like a, a retrospective look mm-hmm. back at MacGyver. Um, so what 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 made you stop? Why didn't you do it? Oh, you know, I got uh I had to finish my PhD and I, uh, my... That, that wouldn't have stopped MacGyver. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, okay, so I was gonna do this uh this thing where each each week when I had watched an episode of MacGyver, I would try to recreate like a MacGyverism from the show, right? So in the pilot episode of MacGyver, he stops uh, a sulfuric acid leak with a bar of chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was like, okay, I'm going to try to stop a sulfuric acid leak with a bar of chocolate. So I stole some some acid from my lab um, at school. And uh, I I, this I probably shouldn't admit this, but you know I didn't take any kind of like safety precautions. I just like poured it in this bottle and put it in my backpack. And when I got home, it had burnt a hole through my backpack because I didn't like take care to like clean off the bottle because <laughs> it wasn't a chocolate backpack. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, my partner got really mad and said, yeah. "No more MacGyver experiments." And I was like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So here, here we are in the process of recording something for infants on thrones mm-hmm. and i'm throwing it to you ren like, all right I, I already know some really i think fascinating things about you and your story and i don't know how much you want to share or talk about with the audience but you tell me what do you what yeah, do you want yeah i should probably maybe give a disclaimer up front or you know uh, i don't disclaimer. know how my how my voice sounds, but uh, I'm transgender, uh, male to female transgender uh, woman. And um, I've been in the process of transitioning for uh, a little over a year. Um, And uh, uh, I think it's been coming along pretty well. Um, And uh, one of the hardest things to tackle with that is uh, like your voice. Um, You know, I, I've, it's, it's one of the things that causes uh, a lot of dysphoria for me. Uh, mm. I don't know if you're, you're probably familiar with that term, but um, yeah. So, uh, but, you know, um, I'm trying to put myself out there. I'm trying to um, uh, embrace it as much as I can and not be uh, afraid of it and uh, kind of can take ownership of my, uh, of who I am. And uh, so, you know, that's, uh, that's kind of uh, something that, you know, I should get out there. Um, But really, in my day to day life, you know, uh, after coming out as transgender, um, I'm really in a very fortunate place, uh, uh, 
where my employees are super, super supportive. And I have a very supportive spouse and, uh, and a really good friend who's really super supportive. And um, so uh, it's and not- do, do you have children as well? No. Um, okay. And uh, I don't know. I, I can't have children mm-hmm. um, physically. Um, and uh, so uh, my partner and I are kind of like, well, that's okay. Because mm. we don't really want each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We cool. have, uh, we have dogs. We love dogs. And, uh, our, our oldest dog, St. Bernard, uh, by the name of Luca just passed away last week and it was really, really hard, but, uh, you know, we're getting through it. We've got our two other dogs. Um, and, uh, yeah. And you, I don't know if you can hear my dogs out barking in the pool right now. She's like been dying to swim all day and I've just been swamped. And so finally we had just like a little window of time. So she's out there swimming. I had to come in, but she's uh, you you might hear her barking quite a bit. That's, that's her euphoria, which is the opposite of dysphoria. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Yeah. And uh, so what I want to talk about, I guess, uh, you know, like you mentioned, we've been um, kind of participating in this experimental um, open hearts club and trying to share some thoughts with each other. Um, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's been a lot of fun, um, but I've got to say, you know, you are really playing fast and loose with a lot of like scientific terms that are kind of like. There's nothing wrong with the science here. Perhaps you mean a different thing than I do when you say science. Wow, I don't know. Uh... Now this sounds like somebody who has a PhD in physics <laughs> that's talking to me right now. <laughs> We, yeah. we haven't we haven't let people know that's your PhD, right? Yeah, I got yeah. a I got a PhD in physics from Arizona State, uh, and uh, it's uh, it's not as cool as it sounds. As like I said, um, in the open hearts <laughs> thing, um, you know, a lot of people when they think PhD in physics, they start thinking about like quantum mechanics, or they think you know Einstein's uh, theory of relativity. I think about stuff. Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory. You actually had it right in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> sure, um, I did. Uh, uh, biophysics, um, uh, and uh, I researched uh, the biomechanical uh, properties of cells, specifically what's called macrophage cells in the human body, um, mm. and their interaction with different um, surfaces um, that we coated with specific types of proteins. Um, to kind of see how the cells would react. Macrophage cells are uh, cells that are part of the immune response and part of um, injury healing. Anytime you cut your skin, um, you, these macrophage cells come by and and uh, kind of try to fight off infection and stuff. See, you're like walking right into all of my favorite talking points right here, <laughs> maybe without even knowing it, Ren. But like, so I'm, I'm very interested to hear about what I'm saying that's fast and loose with the, with scientific concepts and having a, con- a conversation around that. But I've been so fascinated recently thinking about our, like the human body being a collection of living cells. Yeah. Like li- living beings. And I, like, I think that they have their own type of conscious experience of existence, which isn't Mm -hmm. the way that we do it. But so you're talking about these microphages and you're looking at how they respond to surface, like proteins on a surface. Yeah. What, what, what I like, do you, 
would you agree with me or was this fast and loose that these cells have an awareness of their environment and they respond to environmental stimuli? Well, definitely cells respond to environmental stimuli. I mean, that's uncontroversial, I think, uh, you know, that's, and different types of cells react differently to different types of their environment. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, in fact, uh, when you start talking about um, cell differentiation, what changes one cell into a different type of cell, what's the difference yeah. between like your bone cell and your brain cell? Um, a really large part of what makes that division happen is their environment. Right. Yeah. So like a bone cell knows to be a bone cell because it's surrounded by bone and uh, because each one really of the, each one of these yeah. cells in the nucleus has the DNA that mm -hmm. is the blueprint to become any cell anywhere it needs in the body. So it gets yeah. like the certain proteins and probably other things that tell it. Yeah, we need we need you to go over here and become this thing. Yeah. Yeah. As, as an adult, you know, um, the, the cells are kind of, uh, groups of cells are kind of set in their own like path. And there's not a lot of like cross differentiation happening inside an adult human body, but certainly at like the very early stages of, you know, embryonic development, mm -hmm. you know, all of those cells got to organize themselves into the different parts of the body yeah. and, uh, uh, they got to start forming the different organs and stuff. And they do that through environmental stimuli, right? Would, so would you consider, cause here's one of these terms that I, I again, like I'm, I, I hope I'm not like stealing your thunder on what I do fast and loose with, but one of the terms that I know that people have a problem with, and, and I, maybe you've expressed this in that study group too, is when I start using the word intelligence. Mm. And so like, if you're talking about the immune system, I, I've been thinking about this a lot recently. Like if I, accidentally cut my skin while I'm cutting an apple, you know, if it, here, I can put a bandaid on it. I can put Neosporin on it. I can do all these things. That's not really what's going to heal. You know, like eventually right. that cut's going to go away. It's been, like, there might be a little bit of a scar, but there's this whole process of healing that's going on that my body just does like my central nervous system just knows how to do it. And I know I'm using anthropomorphic words like nose because, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. but, but the, the intelligence on how to fix that cut, how to heal that cut is already in my body. I consciously don't do anything to either initiate it or stop it from happening. I can't just think it yeah. into existence. So like I, 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 I use that as a way of thinking about this deep intelligence that just exists in nature. That's totally outside of human consciousness. And I start getting amazed by it. Yeah. It's definitely, that's one of those terms like intelligence, like what does it really mean to be intelligent? Cause uh, you know, certainly uh, you take like the first level approximation of the word intelligence. And most people would be like, no, there's, no intelligence in, you know, nature or like, you know, uh, whatever, uh, you're, you're talking about. Um, but when you really dig deep and ask somebody, well, what does it mean? What is human intelligence? Like, what do you mean when you say like somebody is more intelligent than another person yeah. and you start kind of pulling that apart and digging at the like root of what intelligence is, um, then you find, okay, well, it's just basically, you know, responding to patterns and, and, and that's definitely what like cells do. That's definitely what nature does. Um, I hesitate to say like nature in quotes, um, but certainly like organisms 
uh, all over the world like follow do that right they do what it takes to survive and what it takes to survive is is uh, uh, pattern recognition right pattern pattern recognition stimulus and response Stim- yeah what so you hesitate to put nature uh, you put you put that kind of in quotes what are the uh-huh. things that you would exclude and what are the things that you would include as being intelligent in nature uh yeah i uh okay so you've already kind of boxed me into this like uh, <laughs> see what happens <laughs> Go, climb into the spider web Brian. there's plenty of room here <laughs> because we haven't really we still haven't agreed on like what intelligence is right like um so so if you if you have a really broad definition of intelligence then of course you can include just about anything on earth right um uh what, what even, is that what is that See, I thought that we did. I thought I thought that we agreed mm-hmm. that intelligence is, and now I don't remember what we said a minute ago. Yeah, but that yeah. that stimulus and response and the repeated patterns. Right, right. Stimulus and response and Peter and repeating patterns. I mean, you can you can find that in in just about anything, even like non organic li- uh, stuff, right? Like yeah, uh, yeah, like uh, rocks, like rocks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, geodes, know. crystals, if you yeah. will. And I'm not saying. <laughs> crystal clutching they're going to heal you kind of stuff but yeah so yeah so um the broad definition of intelligence would would be just that there is that kind of predictable pattern there's there's some kind of data somewhere yeah saying if 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 you encounter this kind and again it's it's so it's it's impossible to talk about this without anthropomorphizing it but i don't want to i don't mean to anthropomorphize it make it seem like nature Mm -hmm. is human Mm -hmm. because humanity is nature not it's not the other way around right and so if there's if there's intelligence in in humans it would seem to reason that there's intelligence in nature but that doesn't mean i'm talking about like if I think I want to do something, then I'm going to do it. And I can choose whether like, I've got free will. Like, I'm not saying that mm-hmm. the nature has free will or you know, like anything mm-hmm. like that. It, it, it has intentions on what it does. But just there is some data that is stored somewhere that is telling a rock how to be a rock. And what's the difference between uh, like different types of <laughs> different types of rock, different types of minerals, the different molecules the different chemicals um different atoms uh you know the way that all comes together there is some intelligent pattern of stimulus and response that dictates both organic and or inorganic nature yeah there i don't know if you get much into um thermodynamics or statistical mechanics, but there was uh, this fellow by the name of uh, Shannon in the, I can't remember when, but they came up with the idea of uh, Shannon entropy, or basically this idea that um, uh, all thermodynamics or statistical mechanics is actually, um, you can express it in terms of information. Um, And so, you know, everything has uh, some amount of information and uh, that information has to be organized in a certain way. Um, and uh, over time, the information kind of gets scattered or that is like uh, you, there's more and more information to learn about any kind of given system over time. 
So you probably heard like, you know, the second law of thermodynamics expressed in terms of entropy that, you know, uh, uh, the useful heat in any system, you know, has to um, uh, get scattered over time. Uh, or sometimes people love to talk about like chaos and order, but that's silly. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah, so this, this fella had the idea that, you know, instead of thinking about it in terms of heat, Let's think about it in terms of information. And there's a whole like whole tons and tons of eggheads who spend a lot of time thinking about yeah. information and systems. Um, All right. So are, are you still saying that I play fast and loose with the word intelligence when I'm applying it to nature? Uh, I mean, I'm, I, I'm not too worried about the word intelligence. I'm okay. the one word that I really wanted to pin you down on tonight was oh, good. The word energy. Oh um, yeah. Good, good. <laughs> Good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because yeah, that's the, that's the one that you keep, you know, bringing up and talking about like the, yeah. the, the quantum field of energy that yeah, we're now all, you, and you've listened and everything. You've listened mm -hmm. to the David Tong lecture. Cause we, mm -hmm. we went back and forth in the study group on this. Yeah. So, so he calls it energy. I, I think if you listen real closely to it, he, he doesn't call it energy. He calls electrons themselves as little bundles of energy, but the quantum field is not. He doesn't say it's a whole field of energy that fills the entire universe? No, he says there, there's a, there is a quantum field that fills the entire universe, and that, and that... field has little bundles of energy. Okay. Um, and those bundles of energy are electrons. Okay. Right? So what is the... What is the electron field? If if the electron field, because he describes it as like an ocean that mm -hmm. has these waves and that you could think of like the, the crest of a wave as like this quantumized bundle of energy mm -hmm. that's like highly concentrated compared to the rest of the field that's not so concentrated, but it's right. not energy. Now, the field itself is just that. It's a field, right? It's, it's fundamental, it's, uh, and it's a mathematical construct. It's, you can't really say, well, what is the field? It's the field. It's, it's not made out of anything. It is what it is, right? It, it's not made out of anything, but it is what everything is made out of. Yes. Yes. So everything is made out of something that isn't made out of anything. It's made out of itself. Okay. It's, but what it's a, but what it is, we don't know, but we know it's not energy, even though it bundles up in highly concentrated things that we call energy. Yeah, the energy is a property of the field, right? Okay. Um, so it's it's kind of like, you know, when when you say like, oh, it's a big, it's a field of energy, in my mind, it's very analogous to saying, ah, oh, it's a field of temperature. We're all mm. temperature. And then, you know, in my mind, that's like, well, that doesn't make any, like what, stuff what, isn't temperature, right? What's a better word for it? What, what, would, what would feel more comfortable to you? What would feel more comfortable to me? Just field? The electron field, right? Yeah, but there's more, there's more fields than just the electron field right. because like yeah. there's a boson field and a mm -hmm. proton field. What? I mean, there's probably about 24 uh, for any for any fundamental particle yeah, of any, matter, there is a field that that exactly, particle yeah. is emerging from, mm -hmm. and so it's these these overlapping fields that, as they interact with each other and ripple and whatever all that is, is what's responsible for everything that we see as reality. Yeah, 
So it's, but, it, but, it, but, but the way that I'm doing it fast and loose is by calling that energy and that. Yeah. Well, what I want to know is like, what does that mean to you? Like when you, why are you using the word energy and why do you like to use the word energy? And, and when you think of energy, like, what is it that you are thinking mm. that means? Potential, um, like kind of like a, like a cloud potential. I, I think I'm, I'm using that because that's the way that I thought that David Tong was talking about it. I'll go back and I'll listen more carefully, but I don't know what else to, I don't know what else to call it. Just that it's, it's um, potential. I don't know. Yeah. I really don't even know what it, what it is. Yeah. And I think that that's the case with a lot of people, right? Like we don't really know. Or everyone. <laughs> yeah, no one, yeah no everyone one exactly yeah 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 with everyone we don't really yeah. it's a it's an abstract concept and we have a really hard time with abstract concepts yeah but everybody likes to use that word because it it must resonate with you somehow right like there must like like when people talk about you know the energy of chakras or the energy of like the their auras or something like like they're trying to convey something right and what's really interesting to me is like what is it that they're trying to convey like wh why do people make these appeals in this scientific language to something that ultimately isn't describable scientifically right because, due to ignorance mm. I, I, I think, you know, just my, my, my ignorance of any better word to use or better concept to have. I just, I haven't come across anything better. Like I, I've come across spirit. That was the first way that I was taught to talk about this thing. And that became very dissatisfying for many, many reasons. Yeah. Um, you know, using the word God, yeah, not, not that because that conjures up too many issues that isn't what it is. So I, I guess to, to go back to your question, what's the appeal to me of energy? It's that it's kind of amorphous and undefinable and it, it could be anything and everything. Yeah. So when we talk about how everything is, everything has this inherent potential to be anything and everything right like any any point in space or whatever or or you know quantum whatever you want to call it um has this potential i don't know universe egg i guess um and and thinking about that is very interesting but why like how does it help you in your quest that you've been talking a whole bunch about, Glenn, uh, with your quest to, to drop judgment on mm. your road to becoming the bodhisattva? Yeah. How, how is knowing that fact, like, how does that, like, I don't know, help, help you? It levels the playing field. Mm. It says that when it comes down to what every single one of us is, is made of, it's not our gender. It's not our culture. It's not the color of our skin. It's not how much money we've got in the bank. You know, it's not where we live or how we've like, we are all the same thing when it boils down to it. We're all the same thing. 
and th and that can be extended to this planet it can be extended to animals it can be extended to everything and so it that that thought and like when i look at somebody now and i think okay instead of seeing all of the things that are different about us I, i'm going to force myself to think we are so similar in ways that i just cannot understand i can't understand and and whatever that thing is whether you want to call it energy or something else or temperature <laughs> the, the temperature that feels the entire <laughs> everything the temperature that we're all made from um the that um it it ju it just it levels the playing field for me and so then the the quest to become the bodhisattva is it's another symbol you know way of saying i just want to be accepting and loving and if somebody needs help i'll go okay yeah i'll help you not screw you you're not the right type of person for me to help or you don't deserve it for some reason because for whatever reason it's just like okay yeah you are another version of me that his his and and i like thinking about it i i, I had this thought recently about i don't know if this is going to make any sense to you or not and i don't remember if i because sometimes like late at night, I'll have these thoughts and I'll just record them. And, and sometimes I posted them to that study group. I don't yeah, always, yeah. Mm -hmm. but I had this thought about like different sediments, um, ki kind of like sediments of, of uh, dirt, you know, that you would go out in the desert and, and dig down and you can see uh, kind of like dendrochronology in a, in a tree. You can see the tree rings and you can see, oh, if it's a big ring, that means that it rained a lot that year. If it's a narrow ring, it was kind of a, a drought, but you can see each ring is a year. You can see how old the thing is. You can do that with layers of earth because of the sediments that, you know, pile up. And that there, I, I think of like these cells as kind of sediments of this energy or this fundamental field mm -hmm. that, that the fundamental field the first sedimental layer is whatever that quantumized electron or proton or whatever it is. And then as it combines with other things, it becomes an atom and there's another layer. And then as those atoms combine with other atoms, they become molecules. And, and then those other molecules combine together to become cells or what, whatever. And they become neurons and they become the stuff that we're made out of, which includes our thoughts and our feelings and our impressions and every experience of, of the world it's kind of another thing that people like to, to, I don't know if you've heard me talk about that energy as consciousness. I try to shy away from using that word, but I've heard people mm -hmm. use that word before that everything is consciousness, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. I do think that there's something in there, there's something valuable in thinking about it that way, because I think there is this awareness and sensitivity of environment that happens at all of these different sedimental levels. And that as, <laughs> that sounds weird, as consciousness filters through all these different layers of sediment, it emerges into a conscious experience that we're having right now. And I, I think part of this, I, I, I went down the Stuart Hammeroff rabbit hole. Do you know Stuart Hammeroff? You shared, you shared something uh, from him at the, on the, uh, yeah, the open in that heart group. thing. Yeah, yeah. About so, so the... you listen to him talk about microtubules. Yes. Uh -huh. And and he he and Roger Penrose, who did win a mm -hmm. Nobel Prize for something that you win Nobel holes, prizes for, yeah. <laughs> was Pe was Penrose black holes? I think it was. 
Uh, he, yeah, I mean, well, uh, a lot of people have won pri Nobel prizes for black hole stuff. Okay, um, all right. But Penrose was a big um, part of it. But but the two of them put together some theory that I admit I don't completely understand. But the way that the way that I've understood what they're trying to say is that consciousness is not created by the human brain, but it's kind of filtered through these microtubules that there's these very, very fine vibrations that they're able to detect when they study microtubules. And there's a connection between when microtubules start to deteriorate in a neuron and Alzheimer's disease. So mm. linking it to, to memory, there, there's some basis or substance for that. But, but that there are these microtubules that are inside of every single neuron and the vibration of those, those neurons might be sensitive enough that they're um, getting some kind of signal, contact, stimulus and response from that quantum realm, from deep, deep within the subatomic particles kind of. Mm -hmm. so, so I've got this image in my mind of the, that fundamental field that emerges through all of these sedimental layers of material uh, that it becomes. And that's, that's why there's so much variety in the world. That's why there's so much variety in my experience and your experience. So mm -hmm. again, this is another long indirect way of saying why this way of thinking helps me drop judgment and become the bodhisattva because it, it also fuels my curiosity as to like, we all have this common starting point and we all have mm -hmm. such, a, such variety in the ending points. What's going on there. So it makes me really interested to, to learn about other people in their experiences. Um, mm -hmm. so. You feel like uh, your uh, consciousness, your energy or whatever is, uh, is in eternal. Um, it depends on what you mean by your, <laughs> yeah, yeah, because, because my, my consciousness of Glenn Osland, no, I don't think that my consciousness of Glenn Osland is eternal. I think it exists from when I was born in 19, maybe when I was conceived in the, you know, started mm -hmm. becoming aware of things in utero. And then when I die that, that ends. Um, but the consciousness that is being filtered through me, I think is eternal and the the question is whether there's a, a record um of all of the experiences that that consciousness has had as it has been me that is also part of that embedded deep intelligence that is the intelligence of that fundamental field yeah so how extreme do you take this belief um right because the the real you know struggle um of life i imagine well i'm that's really way too profound for me to try to say but how do you handle like the other right the other consciousnesses that you interact with like when you talk about how ah oh, the deep down level you know we're all the same i should drop judgment um and it, this concept of like dropping judgment to me it raises my cackles you might say because it feels like a very, um, uh, it feels like justification for oppression that, um, you know, it, it's, it's an argument from the status quo uh, that, hey, you know, we all need to just relax. Everything's going to be fine. 
um, you know, the people, if there's, if there's oppression in the world or whatever, you can't really do anything about it. Whoa, um, whoa, whoa, so, whoa, 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 why? Why do well, you, why is, do you go is, there? Because, because if you're, if you're dropping judgment, you shared, uh, you know, a thing where, uh, like a psychic lady or, or oh, the Wendy had, Kennedy Pleiadian, not, not Wendy Kennedy, the Pleiadians, oh. but the, the lady who went into your like, uh, Akashic record and oh. your past lives. Oh, and, the Christy Kephart. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, uh, she brought up, I don't know if it was you or herself, where she was talking about, oh, in, 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 in this past life, I was part of the, the German Nazi, uh, you oh, know, the yeah. guy, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Like, like, do you drop judgment on, for Nazis, right? That's the bottom line question. <laughs> do I drop judgment for, for Nazis? Um Jeez, man, you're now you now you're backing me into a corner, Ren. Um, no, I mean, I I I I have this initial um, repulsive reaction and response um, that would be very fascinating to explore why it is that I have that and and share that with with many people, but but it goes back to kind of what I was trying to describe with that idea of different layers of sediment, mm -hmm. which, which in, in some traditions have been called samskaras um, that are all of the experiences of life that you're using as a filter for Nazi, you know? So if, if somebody was raised pro Nazi and they hear the word Nazi, they're going to have a different reaction and response to it than I do. I'm going to have a very like visceral judging so, so if, when I'm talking about dropping judgment, I don't mean like going, okay, well, in, inhumane acts towards other people are okay. What I'm saying is if, if there's somebody who's standing in front of me and they were a Nazi, <laughs> they were a Nazi at one point in their life, or maybe they still are, that I listen to them, that, that I still judge them based on who they are, not on who I think they are, based on these assumptions and biases that may or may not actually map onto who they really are right now. And, you know, so I just, just to be a little bit more open and detached instead of going into that, like super judgmental. And, and it's, it's kind of, you know, one of the, one of the, criticisms i remember when i was getting into this whole ex-mormon podcasting thing and I, I had never followed mormon apologists i just didn't care and so there, there would be ex-mormons who would critique the mormon apologists and mm -hmm. and one of the main critiques was uh, is it the ex post facto argument is something like that that they've already come to the conclusion that they're going to come to they're not really following the evidence where it's going to take them they're starting with the conclusion and they're working backwards and, and that's kind of what you do when you judge another person. You've, you've got this idea of who they are. And so you retrofit all of your evidence to try to validate this impression that you already had that could really be based on biases and um, stereotypes that might be accurate when you find out about who the person is, or it might not be. Um, but it's, it's more that kind of like intellectual honesty that I 
want to strive for, but that doesn't mean that I am just because I want to drop judgment doesn't mean that I do, <laughs> hmm. or it doesn't mean that it comes, comes easy to me or natural to me, but it's, it's more of, I just, I want to, I want to be fair. I want to give people the benefit of the doubt when I can, I want to. Yeah. You think that the attitude of like dropping judgment, does it placate you? Does it, does it, uh, you know, wanting to drop judgment and kind of give everybody enough breathing room to, to make their case? Does it, uh, does it take the wind out of your sails for um, working towards a more just future, a more just society? You tell me. You've been listening to this podcast for a while. What do you think? Well, I think it does. I think I've, I, um, so there's this essay, essay by uh, Karl Marx where he talks about how, um, you know, religion, the kind of famous phrase from Karl Marx of how religion is the opiate of the masses, right? Mm -hmm. In that same essay, he talks about, you know, criticism of religion um, and that, you know, criticism of religion um, is, a, is a criticism against the conditions that require a religion, right? And so criticism of religion ultimately must lead to uh, criticism of politics, right? And so, so, um, so you're saying that the politics are part of the conditions that require a religion in the first place. Yeah. Politics make up our society, you know, like yeah. it's, it's, uh, uh, the, the reason that our world is the way it is, is because of politics. Like we are all, I, 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 I think of politics people. and religion at kind of a similar level and that there's, there's, um, forces that are more fundamental to each one of them that, that create those systems does that make sense like so so for example what what i got really interested in several years ago was cognitive distortions mm -hmm. the, the 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 and how religion shapes our minds to have certain expectations of the world and rather than wanting to focus so much on how bad the mormon church is and just want to kick the shit out of all the time i i, I wanted to focus on the mind of the people that um, first of all, my mind, I wanted to better understand what are my cognitive distortions. What, and, and that includes things like black and white thinking and catastrophizing that <laughs> would make me more closed off rather than being open to, to other people. So I, I see, I see the mind as being, and I, what was it that Karl Marx said that supports religion? It's the fundamental, what? The, the criticism of religion is the criticism of the conditions that would require religion. That would require religion. So, so mm -hmm. I, to, to me, it's the mind that, that I want to go to and explore when I'm trying to find the conditions that would create the religion or even the conditions that would create the, the, the politics, the political, like any, any kind of community set of um, structure, uh, rules, norms so you don't think that um your you know material conditions that you find yourself in uh are not uh, uh that politics has no play in those material conditions no i no i i don't think that polit what i think yeah i think i went two steps backwards <laughs> or something so 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 yeah so you're you're saying that religion I'm I'm saying that I'm not as interested in politics as I uh -huh. am in the mind. 
Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm trying to say, what I think I'm trying to say is that the mind is shaped just like cells are shaped by your mm -hmm. environment. Mm -hmm. And that environment is shaped by politics. And politics is shaped by human minds. First and foremost, yes. th there were human yeah. minds before there were politics. Yeah, but th th there was, but now there is a, a superstructure, right? Uh, mm -hmm. A societal like um, uh, structure that we live in um, that is imposed on us, right? Mm -hmm. And and that feedback is now, you know, I, I is now, you know, influencing our own our our minds, right? Yeah, and I I think. I think the amount of influence that that structure has on your mind is related to the amount of exposure you give yourself to like political issues, political arguments. Right. So this belief, this journey inward, this, yeah. this like, you know, journey inward to drop judgment. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, is it taking away the energy needed <laughs> to, to, uh, change the structures, uh, the, the political structures. I don't think so. You don't think so? No, because I think what's going to change the political structures. And I think we're seeing it happen. I think we're living through it right now as things are, are beginning to crumble. Mm -hmm. It's because of, it's because the dissatisfaction in people's minds and saying, I've been told all this time that this is how it is, but it's not how it has to be. And I'm going to change it. And the, the, the first place to make those changes, I think the first and most effective place to make those changes is the is individually that that human mind. And then there are concentric spheres of influence that, that you have of people around you. Um, but but I, I, I see, you know, my, I, I've never been that drawn to politics, although. <laughs> I, I used to listen to Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity a lot, but it yeah. was because I had a, a job where I was in the car and mm -hmm. it was before any, the internet and mm -hmm. I, there wasn't talk radio anywhere except this conservative talk radio. And sometimes mm -hmm. I'd listen to music and sometimes I just wanted to hear ideas being discussed. Mm -hmm. And, and that eventually drove me to kind of hate because <laughs> I'm like, man, they are sure like pompous blowhards. I do not like the way that they're doing it, mm -hmm. but I've never, I've never really um, been all of that attracted to politics. And, and when Trump was elected in 2016, I, you know, I kind of went down that whole rabbit hole of, you know, let's get the pitchforks out and fight against this guy. And, you know, we did a couple of episodes on infants on thrones around mm -hmm. the dossier and some things like that. <laughs> and, and I was watching Rachel Maddow every night and mm -hmm. I was working myself up into such an impotent rage. <laughs> you know, there was nothing <laughs> I could do about this stuff. And I was so filled with anxiety. And then on top of that, I was having stuff going on with, with, with my job and stuff with my marriage and just like, okay, something's, something's got to give here. Mm -hmm. And so I disengaged from Rachel Maddow. I really disengaged from all of the, the political stuff. And so, mm -hmm. so I'm wondering if maybe that's what you're responding to that, because I, I'm not like a big proponent of um, th yeah. this, this, this is bad and this has got to change and we've got to yeah. take action right now. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. You, if you recall, 
uh, on Infants on Thrones yeah. uh, just before the election in 2016. Like you had an episode where all of you were just going off on like, oh, it's going to be so great. Hillary's going to win. Yeah, you say and all said, of me. I don't think I was on that episode. That oh, was like a John. <laughs> it was a John Hamer and yeah. Heather and Randy. Yeah. And they're just Jake, basically gloating. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, this is all fine. Texas yeah. will be a democratic state. You know, you'll see. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and like, and, and I just so did not care at all. You know, like, that's cool. That's what they want to talk about, do an episode about I fine. See. But uh-huh. it wasn't, it wasn't anything that I was particularly interested in. And I do remember there was, there was quite a response to listeners that were like, Hey, just because we're ex-Mormons doesn't mean that we're Democrats. We don't want to be, you know, listening to all this liberal bullshit from people who don't really mm-hmm. know what they're talking about. Mm. <laughs> so. Yeah, well, it's interesting to me because of the those like the path that I went on after 2016. Like I kind of told you a little bit about it on the open hearts thing, but like uh I guess I didn't say too much about it, but like I kind of went um opposite. I think well not not necessarily opposite like I was pissed off that Trump got elected of course you know Mm -hmm. um apologies to the the ex-Mormons who are conservatives um but um you're uh, allowed you're allowed to be pissed off (laughs) and you don't uh, have to apologize to anybody for that Ren yeah but it it drove me much more left to the point of where I was like Rachel Maddow what she's she doesn't know what she's talking about from like the left side right uh i had i had a very good friend who served a mission with me in indiana um and we actually were you know not companions but we served in the same like area in bloomington you know what i was telling you about yeah and uh he i reached out to him as i was leaving the church and i was like you know what in the world is this are you still in the church he's like no (laughs) i was like oh okay um but, you know, he he kind of, you know, I'd vent to him about how pissed off I was about the election and stuff. He's like, yeah, yeah. He was, he was just like, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe you should listen to this. Maybe you should listen to this. And and I started listening to like these like, you know, way far left like podcasts mm-hmm. and stuff. And and I got really energized and like um, w- way more like interested in in politics. Right. Like. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's interesting that it kind of turned, you got kind of turned off or maybe you were already turned off to it. Maybe it's just that been, that's been your nature this whole time. Um, but to me, I felt like, um, uh, you know, that, that, uh, uh, that same phrase from like Marx, right? That criticism of religion is a criticism of the conditions that create that would necessitate religion. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, to me, the conditions that necessitate like religion uh, are, are, is chiefly and, and foremost at this point of time, like capitalism, right? And yeah, I don't, I mean, I haven't put any thought into this, Ren, but I, <laughs> w- when, when you give that Karl Marx quote, I think that you could just as easily substitute politics for religion in there and that, that a critique of the politics is really the critique of the exactly. system. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and so if you're going to talk about capitalism i i would want to go what is it about the human mind that makes it makes you think that it's okay to like like there's different types of capitalism there's different forms of capitalism and Mm -hmm. i i I think a lot of times when capitalism is being critiqued it's the exploitation of other people Mm -hmm. so what what is it in somebody's mind that would make them think that it's okay to take more than they give Mm -hmm. yeah and that, and you're saying that the that root in the mind is 
is is the true thing that creates the condition that people need a religion for is that what you're saying Oh, I'm not, I'm not tying it to religion. I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm saying, oh, sure. I, I think or... that, that, that that condition in the mind that says, um, for example, there's only so much, there's the scarcity and I got to get mm-hmm. mine because nobody's going to get it for me. Mm-hmm. And you know, you've got these stories in your mind that then that creates the systems that we're critiquing as capitalism, or it mm-hmm. bleeds into religion um, as well, but it all stems from this, this story that we either create or we're taught and we believe it that nobody's going to, there's no such thing as a free lunch and mm-hmm. you, you gotta, you know, just like all, mm-hmm. all of these different things that really mm-hmm. form our expectations of the world. And then it shows up in, in politics and, but, but politics also, it, it's a revolving door because politics mm-hmm. is one of the things that it influences those stories as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So taking that uh, journey inward, you know, when you're talking about these things in your mind, like what, what would cause someone to feel like they should, they can take more than they give. Right. Um, uh, when you look inward towards yourself, the belief that we all uh, are part of this sedimentary construction of just call it this, energy. This energy. <laughs> <laughs> I win. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> uh, no, the, uh, uh, you know, knowing that, knowing we're all the same, knowing that we're all built out of the same stuff. Does that, do you believe it enough to sell all your possessions to the poor? Mm, uh, sell all you have and give it to the poor not yet no <laughs> that's the real that's the real crux of it isn't it like and that's like i think well you know, but that but that's like that that's like an extreme i mean like it it doesn't mean that i'm not compassionate and generous towards the poor it, it doesn't mean that oh, when yeah. that 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 i'm comfortable uh taking more than I give that that's the thing. So like when, when I, mm-hmm. when I look at society and I, I look at politics and I critique it and I say, Oh, the problem here is that there's something in the mind that makes you think that it's okay to exploit another person. Mm-hmm. Then I go, I better not exploit people or now I'm the hugest hypocrite in the world. But don't you feel that this. appeal though? Like, don't you feel like, I, I don't you feel that appeal when you hear that story of Jesus, you know, talking to that guy and, and to the rich man and saying, you know, if you really believe in me, you know, sell all you have and give it to the poor and follow me. Like, like, doesn't that grab you? And like, I, I mean, of course I'm hypocritical in this statement. Cause I don't, I'm, I feel the same way, you know, like I come up when you start talking about these like justifications of like, Oh, well, you know, that's extreme. I'm, I am generous. I'm compassionate. I give to people, you know, blah, 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 but well, Jesus and, also like, said, render under Caesar, the things that are Caesar's and you know, whatever the blah, 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 the kingdom of God thing too. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, so, so no, I don't find that a compelling thing because Jesus said to do it, to just do it because I don't think that that, I mean, for so many reasons, <laughs> I, 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 I don't find that compelling, but, but I do find compelling to say, um, put aside, maybe the, the Yoda version of that is that you must unlearn what you have learned, you know, like 
um, wh whatever you think that you know, set that aside and come and follow this path of service to others. Drop all of your prejudices, drop all of your stereotypes, everything that you think should prevent you from really being of service and compassionate to others. Just let that go, put that aside and, and be generous of heart, generous of spirit. Not necessarily you got to sell all your things, but your, your ideas, your mindset, your beliefs, um, so if, if I take a metaphorical interpretation of that quote, I could maybe, I don't know if I mm -hmm. would get a temple recommend by answering something like that, but mm -hmm. um, you know. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I think I, I feel like, like uh, uh, I feel like, no, don't, don't, this isn't metaphor. This isn't, this isn't, you know, symbolism. This is the real world. This is our material conditions and and what what the the belief that we're all equal means is that we should all be treated equal and being treated equal means taking from the rich and giving to the poor right um and and that's i i don't know um uh like one of my favorite, you know, back in church days, you know, one of the more admirable, admirable stories of, I, of Joseph Smith is that story of, uh, you know, somebody came to a meeting or something and said, so-and-so law got, I don't, I can't remember the details of the story, but you know, this, uh, saint, he got, uh, attacked by the mob and is now, you know, uh, lost all of his possessions and everybody started just talking about, Oh, how, how bad they felt about him. And then Joseph Smith took out a hat and says and said i feel bad about it i feel bad by no, five dollars yeah, <laughs> by right, this yeah. much yeah. <laughs> and then pass it around yeah like that i i like that appeals to me i don't know yeah yeah and but whether it's whether it's money or it's just like let, let's go build this guy's barn or let, let's go babysit their kid you know do mm -hmm. something do some act of service um mm -hmm. let's just go sit and talk with them and mm -hmm. listen to their story you know there's there's all different ways that you can um, show that kind of care and compassion to each other where that story is just like, are you just going to sit here and bitch about it? Or are we going to do something about it? Mm -hmm. You know? And, mm -hmm. and I, I don't think that what I'm doing and saying, I want to drop judgment and become the Bodhisatt Bodhisattva is saying, I just want to disengage from everybody and not help anybody. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like I, I don't, I want to withdraw and become a hermit and not be part of the world, or I want to sell everything mm -hmm. and not be part of this system um, you know, it's, it's, it's more for me about like really this close examination of, uh, I, 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 I think of the faith crisis in Mormonism as a microcosm for this sort of thing, where I, I was raised to believe things that I later found out weren't necessarily true, but I sure as heck believed them. Um, and you couldn't convince me any other way until for whatever reason, I finally saw it. And, and if, if that happened to me in the Mormon church, in this really, really small microcosm of culture, what's to make me think it's not going to happen in the rest of the world. And that mm -hmm. whether it's political ideas, or this is how your school system has to be, or this is how business has to be, you know, you have to have a nine to five, you know, like all of these human constructs. It's one mm -hmm. of the reasons why I loved the book Sapiens is like pointing out all of these fictions, these intersubjective 
uh, realities that are really just the fabrications of people's mind that we're agreeing to live under these conditions, but they're not natural in the way that they grow out of the world. They accept through human minds and that's mm -hmm. an extension of nature. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Hey, uh, did you, uh, did you ever start reading uh, Dune? Like the yeah. mushroom people are talking to you? Yeah. Yeah. Have I you haven't finished. finished? Haven't no, finished I yet? haven't. I haven't finished it yet. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm more than halfway through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. 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 I just, uh, you know, uh, listened to it as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I was really excited when you were talking to the mushroom people about it. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't know. I, are you going to have a like a conversation with them uh about it maybe i don't know maybe <laughs> i love I, talking about doom <laughs> yeah I, I don't even know if i'm going to finish the the uh the audio book before i go see the movie because the movie comes out mm. this week right uh yeah next weekend yeah 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 so i'm looking forward to see I, I, I think uh, i've seen enough of the book that i that i could follow along the movie and know what's going on with it but mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i think i think uh there's a ton of uh, themes from it that uh, are definitely right in your alley and in this like whole conversation you've been having with people so much about um, uh, everything being made of energy and like memories and like what mm. memories are and and all of that stuff premonitions and premonitions and magic and yeah you know like the the way that I, I forget what the I, I don't even remember the characters' names right now, mm -hmm. um, but but the one that was married to the duke, or she she wasn't she was always a concubine. They they keep making yeah. that point. She never did marry him, but she she was trained in this ancient way of like being able to manipulate people's minds just by the words that she uses. Mm -hmm. I I love that idea. <laughs> yeah, because we we have that all around us. I mean, like mm -hmm. the words that people use, and you talk about politics. Um, mm -hmm it's it's so i don't i don't know i wouldn't say easy but um words have tremendous influence over people's minds mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they're just air molecules that are bouncing off of each other yeah um yeah i guess this is kind of uh the end of the time i don't know yeah if you are need to jet off sounds like uh, no. Got a piano recital? no yeah 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 aaron's playing piano in the background i enjoyed this a lot ren Mm -hmm. I, I've, I've really enjoyed every time you've contributed to that study group. It's, mm -hmm. it's kind of fallen off over the last month or so, but um, mm -hmm. are you mad at me? Uh, about the... Uh, yeah, is that why you haven't been sending anything in in the study group? You're mad I, I'll admit, I, my, I got pretty upset about the, the Wendy Kennedy... Um, Orion one? Thing. The, yeah. The, yeah. Um, and then like i I, <laughs> I understand like you know it was just kind of some some teasing back and forth about it but like that's what i'm talking about though glenn is that like okay she comes out with this full-throated like denial of of human caused climate change right like just, just she's like she just plain out says it well the palladians say it right that that climate change isn't real and the climate that's change not is what happening. she said that's exactly well, what that's not what said. i heard no okay, what, what, well. <laughs> what i heard is that is that climate change is real but there are other factors besides no. this and i'm gonna play the clip play the clip it's yeah. cl climate change is not real that's what she said she said sure 
there's changes in in temperature and then she went on to say that the reason the world is getting warmer is because of the photonic energies in the galactic alignment um that's happening right now Mm. um and that it's all part of this you know this phase transition that the earth's going through or whatever she needs the term phase transition but yeah but but no but so so this so i feel like this is a common thing in like people who who practice these alternative thoughts and like you know um there's a very famous like uh uh uh, it's not very famous but some people think that there is a strong like woo to right-wing politics pipeline right because uh this this messaging that like uh, uh uh you just need to focus on yourself and you just need to, um, you know, uh, find your inner, you know, balance your inner chakras or, you know, absorb more orgone energy or something and, and, you know, work on yourself and um, become the best person that you can be and kind of ignore these other things around you, ignore your environment, ignore like the the situations that are happening around you because you know they're not what's really important um but you know we are this these things are important right we're in an existential like situation with regards to climate change right and the messaging that you can just not worry about it and ignore it that like really like you know kind of set me off um and uh i don't know it it frustrating to me yeah and i i didn't i didn't hear that that was the message to like not worry about it and just ignore it um and in fact i i I remember her distinctly talking about the the way that humans are polluting the planet is very real and needs to be addressed Mm -hmm. um but so so like i i interpreted your reaction to it as a very valid response based on everything that you've ever experienced in your life and it's different from my reaction to it because we've had different experiences in our life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but I, I don't like, I'm not in that camp. Like if you're trying to put me in a camp of just go inward and don't care about anything else in the environment and be a denier of climate change and things like that. Like to me, I would say maybe that's some stereotyping and biasing on your part that you're putting onto me because I, I sure don't feel that way, you know, mm. and, and mm. that's not what I'm saying, but, mm-hmm. but you've, you've made these associations with uh, that message and things like this. So that, that's what I think is going on, but I, I don't know, Ren. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, ultimately it's kind of uh, not really like, I, 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 I don't want to, like I mentioned in like one of the very first things, like I don't want to be a really like, well, actually this is this way, and actually this is this way kind of person, because I do really like, um, the <laughs> I do really like the the Palladian stuff and like hearing people's ideas on, you know, what could like the universe mean, because um, I, I I like hearing that kind of stuff. It's fun, um, but yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, we bring our own biases to things. And, um, 
I, I maybe let mine shine a lot. <laughs> well, the, 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 the one thing that's really Im- important to me that I, when I was, when I was talking about my reaction to Rachel Maddow, uh, I, mm-hmm. I mentioned the, oh, that's really loud. Now I've got the dog <laughs> singing along the piano in the back. Nice. He's pretty good. <laughs> Is, uh, um, the anxiety that I had just in, in so mm. like my cortisol levels were sky high, high blood mm-hmm. pressure. It just wasn't, it wasn't physically healthy for me. It wasn't mentally, emotionally healthy for me. And what, what I believe, I think this is right, that, that when you're triggered in that fight or flight state, the options narrow, mm-hmm. uh, like ways to response, ways to respond. You, you just don't have your full faculty of reasoning at your disposal because you're really triggered on fight or flight or freeze. Mm-hmm. And, and so when I hear like Wendy Kennedy talking about the, the climate change and things like that that are going on in the world. What I think she's saying to people is don't allow yourself to be so worked up that you're in a state that's unhealthy for you, not disengage from this completely and don't do anything to fix the problems. Mm. Mm. So, I, so I, I, I hear it as yes, that there are definitely issues in the world and they need to be considered, but don't get sucked into the, the, the catastrophizing that is one of those cognitive distortions that what, once you develop these habits of how you see the world and you start seeing catastrophes everywhere and the making mountains out of molehills and things like that. And, but then you go, okay, but what if it really is a mountain and it's not a molehill? Don't tell me that it's a molehill when it's really a mountain, you know? And yeah, so I, I can see that, but I, what, what I heard her saying in that thing. And I, I thought that that, whatever it's called that she did um, that story that she told about people in Orion system that had thought control. It reminded me mm-hmm, of the plot mm-hmm. to minority report actually, <laughs> but mm-hmm. like stretching the imagination to think, what would it be like if we lived in a world where our thoughts really were policed and monitored and things like that? Because it, it's not that far of a stretch from the way that things seem to be headed right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. But that, that was the part that I found really interesting. And so she's saying, get control of your thoughts, you know, get, get, get control of your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I like that message mm-hmm. that, that really appeals to me, cool. but it doesn't, it doesn't mean close your eyes to the plights of, of humanity and the suffering of people around you. I hope so. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah, so um, uh, yeah, I guess uh, I, I I'm, I've been planning a pretty good uh, uh, I guess uh, thing to send in for the open hearts thing. Oh, good. Um, especially Did... with that, I listened to the Gene Keys thing you sent out. You know. Oh yeah. And uh, and uh, yeah, definitely definitely had Man, some fun some that's... fun phrases from there. <laughs> that is my newest favorite book. And if you think that Wendy Kennedy is out there, the Gene Key <laughs> stuff is way, way out there, but I just love yeah. it. I love it. Man. And um, did, did you also listen to the one with uh, Bernardo Castro? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Kind of follow up uh, from Good. the Don Hoffman stuff kind of. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, well, I, I look forward to that. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it more. So. Yeah, that'd be cool. Well, thanks for doing um, this, Ren. And yeah, anytime... Uh, like if there are other things that I'm playing fast and loose with and I need 
correction or like i love it i love it oh so, cool yeah i had a lot of fun tonight yeah i did too this was a, this was a great time um yeah. can't wait to tell my friend kyle that was all if it's all throws <laughs> oh, <my God>. <laughs> <laughs> oh i got a, i got a request you're gonna you're gonna put me the, the normal kind of stinger with jason mraz on here I can, but do you have another request? Yeah, put in put in the Internationale, the original French. You're going to have to send me the link to that. All right. I'll send you the link to it. All right. All right. All right. Take care, Rip. Take care, Rip. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Put down the weapons that you use against yourself. You don't need them anymore. All right. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. Just want to remind you, if you'd like to support this podcast financially for as little as $1 a month, you can do that on Patreon. You can find more information about joining Patreon under this episode on infantsonthrones.com. You can also fill out the mindfulness survey if you'd like to do that. I'd love to hear from you. And, you know, I am a life coach, and I'm a pretty good one, and I do 30-minute free consultations. So if you're interested in scheduling a 30-minute free consultation with me to see what I could do to help you as a life coach, uh, you can schedule that from the website Infants on Thrones as well. Look under this episode, 786, Transgender Testimony Time. I'll put a link there. And uh, thanks, Ren, and thanks, Annie, and thanks all the rest of you for listening. Anyone for the closing prayer? Hello, brothers and sisters. This is Elder E. Eldon Elderman of the Seventh Quorum of the Seventy. When I'm not interviewing children about their masturbation practices, I monitor the Infants on Thrones podcast for the Strengthening the Members Committee. If you really like what you hear, you can jeopardize your eternal salvation by giving the quorum a five-star rating and writing a short review on iTunes. I didn't, but that's because I want to be resurrected with my genitalia intact. Anyone for the closing prayer? Thanks.